Hi, I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, and I'm pleased to give you this public service announcement. Do you have a question about protecting your privacy? Do you wonder how you can fight identity theft? Each year, the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse helps thousands of consumers who have complaints or questions about a wide variety of privacy topics. The Clearinghouse offers assistance through its consumer hotline and its extensive website. It is rich with tips and problem-solving advice for you, so go to www.privacyrights.org. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the state of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV, Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC News, O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo, Montel, lots of other shows. Last year, she had her own 90-minute PBS special called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Good evening, Murray. Good evening, Lloyd. Now, you probably remember when we met James M. Jordan III. We met him at the Poneman Institute. Great guy. Yep. Well, we are so thrilled because he's coming to us all the way from the East Coast tonight. Let me tell you a little bit about him. James Jordan is the founder of Jordan Legal Counsel, assisting companies with global compliance programs with particular emphasis on laws pertaining to personal data protection, information technology, and e-commerce. Previously, he spent six years as in-house lawyer for the General Electric Company, where he held the title of Chief Privacy Officer and Senior Counsel for E-Commerce and Information Technology. Jim was responsible for global privacy law compliance, and he led the implementation of a pioneering binding corporate rules, which is BCR. We're going to talk about that. That program uh, was formally approved by the data protection authorities in a number of in uh, European Union member states because, you know, when you transfer data back and forth from the United States to uh, the European Union company uh, countries and back and forth, there are some really unique privacy issues he's going to tell us about. Anyway, so he was um, instrumental in in doing that, especially for transfers of employment data. Prior to being with uh, General Electric, Jim was a partner in the intellectual property uh, law firm of Austin and Bird, and he's a member of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, which we've seen him there as well, and he's a certified information privacy professional, which I I became uh, this year. A member of, he's also a member of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, CIPP, 
Advisory Board, and he teaches the workplace privacy module of the, of the examination to become a certified information privacy professional. So we're so thrilled to have him. He's, uh, he's from uh, Georgia. He went to the, uh, he, he got a, a degree in physics and his law degree at the University of Georgia, and he served for seven years as a uh, Navy nuclear submarine officer. So we're so thrilled to have you, Jim. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Maury. Well, we got some good questions for you here. Um, tell us a little bit about how you became involved in privacy law. Well, I, uh, after my early Navy career and I went back to law school, uh, I was a litigator. And at some point when the Internet came along in the mid-90s, I got interested in the technology of the Internet and all the neat things you could do with it. And I started focusing my law practice around it. Privacy issues in the mid-90s were not a big deal, at least uh, the way they are now. Uh, but there were lots of issues about how do you form online contracts and how do you develop websites. And um, you know, For companies, uh, they were dealing with employees that were using email for the first time and what sorts of policies they needed to have for that. So we were dealing with lots of new cutting-edge issues around electronic commerce and the Internet. And there was a little bit of privacy going on, uh, but that was about the time when the European Union Privacy Directive, uh, the Personal Data Protection Directive, was still in the process of being developed. That didn't actually come out until 1996 and wasn't fully implemented until 2000. So a lot of us were intellectual property lawyers or e-commerce lawyers or Internet lawyers and learning a little bit about privacy as it came up. Uh, I joined General Electric Company uh, from Alston and Bird in 1999 and went in with the title of e-commerce attorney. Uh, but it was only a couple of years uh, after that that the privacy issues became uh, a, a big enough deal that people started carrying privacy officer titles. Uh, and that was probably you know, around 2000 uh, when the EU Data Protection Directive um, uh, began to be enforced, uh, when HIPAA uh, came out, uh, Gramm-Leach-Bliley was shortly after that, um, COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. So we saw a lot of legislation uh, come out in this country and in Europe uh, in around the 2000-2001 time frame, and, and companies began to gear up for that and began designating people as either privacy lawyers or privacy officers. And so I ended up getting involved in that while I was at GE. I became the chief privacy officer initially of the General Electric uh, Power Systems Division, which is now called GE Energy, um, and then subsequently became the chief privacy officer of the entire General Electric Company uh, in 2003. That was a big hat to wear, wasn't it? <laughs> that, you know, General Electric Company is a, a very big company. Uh, they are in over 100 countries, uh, and they're in almost every line of business that you can be in. So we had about every privacy issue <laughs> that you can have. You know, we, we did have uh, to deal with the children's online privacy issues because we had um, NBC and Universal Studios, and they did promotions, and some of those you know, were attractive to, to children under the age of 13. And, and we should tell our audience, in case they don't really know about that, that, you know, when you uh, collect information or you want to collect information on the Internet from kids under 13, you have to have parental consent. So that's what you were talking about with COPPA, basically, bottom line, right? Exactly. And there's some real gymnastics sometimes that you have to go through in order to make sure that you're really getting consent from a parent rather than from a kid pretending to be a parent. Exactly. Um, um, it's, it's bad enough with a big company, but those people who are driving by now and you have a company and, and the Internet that is collecting, you better be compliant whether 
whether you're a little company or a big company, right, Jim? That's right, because uh, the, this is being enforced. The uh, Federal Trade Commission takes it seriously, and, and you can go to their website and see where they have enforced it against some companies. Now, a lot of people don't know about the European Union uh, data protection in their directive. Can you? I know it's very complex, but for those people who are not into exporting and importing, who have smaller business or intend to do that, can you kind of give a little overview of, of what it meant to you as a chief privacy officer, what, what kinds of things you had to do? Yes. Um, the, the primary thing that I ended up spending a lot of time on was the fact that we had 80,000 employees in Europe, and we wanted to maintain a centralized employee database in the United States with all about 300,000 employees worldwide in it. So we were collecting pretty substantial amounts of, of personal information about employees in Europe and then transferring them to the United States, and there were some transfer restrictions. Now, if you're not a big company with employees in Europe, you may not have that issue. Um, but even if you're just operating a website, if you are allowing people from Europe uh, to log on to the website, register for the site, enter personal information, uh, you may be, be then communicating with them, sending them uh, promotional emails, sending them newsletters. You are now getting into territory where European law may apply to what you are doing, and you need to be cognizant of that because there are some things in the European data protection laws and in the email marketing laws that are different than the way things are done in the United States. Can you kind of explain some of the, the major, just I know there's, there's a lot of differences, but the major differences that, that, um, that people really need to watch out for if they're collecting data on their employees in another country and want to bring that data over here, or if they're collecting data from their customers from the European and bringing that data over here? Yes. Um, the European Union, through a directive that applies across the European Union uh, and applies to all 27 countries, up to 27 now. They just added to uh, the beginning of this month. Um, uh, and then those, that directive is uh, implemented at the national level by national laws, and those vary a little bit. So you have 27 different national laws, but they're all implementing the minimal requirements of a directive. And there's a directive that deals with um, personal data protection. There's another directive that deals with communications, such as email marketing. Um, one difference uh, is that for the email marketing, uh, it's pretty much an opt-in standard. Uh, you have to get prior consent before you can send the first email, whereas in the United States under the CAN-SPAM Act, you're allowed to send the first email and put an opt-out in the email so that they can opt out of receiving further ones. So that's a different approach for the email marketing part of it. The, probably the biggest thing on the privacy side of it is that they define personal data very broadly to include not just the sort of niche things that we protect in the U.S., such as financial information and healthcare information and children's information, but personal data about everyone and everything. Now, any information that is identifiable to a person is regulated in the EU. So that's one significant thing. Another significant thing is that they have a set of rules about how personal data has to be handled, secured, shared, um, and the restrictions on those things. And they feel that their system of protections for personal data is much better uh, than the one in the United States and in other areas of the world. And so they have uh, imposed a restriction on transferring personal data that was collected in the EU to any place else. 
unless that jurisdiction that it's being transferred to has been declared to be adequate. And they have declared a few countries to be adequate outside of the EU. They have declared Canada to have adequate data protections in their law. Uh, They've declared Argentina to have adequate data protection in their law and a few others. Uh, But the United States, despite all the laws that we have, uh, has not been declared to be an adequate jurisdiction for personal data collected in Europe. What that means for companies is that if they want to transfer data from Europe to the U.S., They've got to establish adequate protections for the data through another method that is recognized by the European Data Protection Authorities. And there are several that are available to you. Uh, One is consent, and if you are operating a website, that is one way to go, is just make a complete disclosure uh, to the people that you're collecting the data from, what you're going to do with it, and have them click a button that says they agree with that. So, so that's individual consent, right? Right. You get consent from what in Europe is called the data subject, which is the person about whom the data pertains. That, unfortunately, has come under a bit of criticism from the European regulators. Uh, they have decided, particularly for employees, uh, that they don't trust consent very much because they think there's a lot of leverage in the employee-employer relationship. And so employees may simply be agreeing to what their employers ask them to agree to, and so the consent... Uh, wouldn't be very valid in that circumstance. Right. They might be afraid that they're pressured to do it to keep their job. That's exactly right. That's the concern. Right. And they're also beginning to take that uh, criticism to the consumer level as well and to say, well, you know, do people really know what they're reading? Do they really know what they're agreeing to? Um, Is consent enough? Right. Um, And so some of the data protection authorities have begun to take a dim view of allowing transfers of data to the U.S. based entirely on consent in particular, where the consent is not accompanied by adequate protections. Because theoretically, you could get someone's consent to transfer the data and then not protect it at all. Right. You could have right. a posted privacy policy that just says, we'll do anything we feel like with your information, click here to agree. <laughs> right. And if you get somebody to agree to that, then you've captured consent. Right. And so I think that's what the regulators are worried about. Now, if you uh, combine that consent with, with real protections uh, that are similar to the European protections, you put... Um, security protections in place to prevent unauthorized access to the data. Uh, You create access lists of people that have a need for the data, and they're the only ones who are allowed to get to it, things like that. Um, Then those are adequate protections, and you're probably going to be in a lot better shape. Now, Jim, isn't it true that that if we, if a company uh, really complies with the EU directive, that the uh, European data persons, uh, the persons, um, data subjects, actually have more protection than those of us in the United States? Well, I, yeah, I, I think that you could definitely say that the European Union standard uh, for data protection is higher than that in the United States. If you're comparing what their legal requirements are versus what the U.S. legal requirements are. Right. I think it's debatable whether the actual level of protection <laughs> right. uh, for personal data is higher in the uh, the U.S. The Poneman Institute did a study, uh, I think within the last year, um, where they looked at the actual compliance with those European laws by European companies. Right. And they found that the European companies, you know, a lot of them were not complying with the European personal data protection laws. Right, So I think it depends on whether you're talking about what the law requires or what's really happening. Right, right, right. So so the other method, one of the other methods would be to have a contract, right? That's right. One of the other ways that you can establish adequate protection for the data 
and a legal ground for transferring out of Europe is to use uh, what they call model contract clauses, which have been approved by the European uh, Commission. And they are posted on a website, and you can download them in PDF format. And, and, and companies like Microsoft use those, don't they? Uh, there are. There's actually, uh, it, it's hard to say exactly who's using model contracts. Okay. Because unlike the, the U.S. Safe Harbor, which we can talk about in a minute, where yes. you, all the people who are doing Safe Harbor are posted on a website somewhere so that you can go and see, um, people who are using model contracts don't have to publicly say that that's what they're doing. Right. It's just between them and, and, and the, um, the other companies or the people that they're dealing with, or how does right. that work? The, the, the approach is that if you are a legal entity in the EU and you are transferring data to a different legal entity that's somewhere else, and including the United States, right. you are considered to be an exporter of right. data, right. and the other person or the other company is an importer of data. And so you enter into a contract between the exporter and mm-hmm. the importer, and that provides by contract that the protections that would apply under European law will apply in whatever jurisdiction uh, the data goes to. And then there's a contractually binding obligation uh, that the importer of the data then has to follow as he uses the data and as he passes it down the line to other entities in what's called an onward transfer right. of the data. Right, And then there's the safe harbor, and you want to explain that for sure. us? Sure. The safe harbor is yet another method for... Uh, formally putting adequate protections in place for European personal data. And under that uh, uh, scheme, what you do is you go to the Department of Commerce website, the U.S. Department of Commerce website for Safe Harbor, which is www.export.gov slash Safe Harbor. And you certify on behalf of your company that your company is going to live up to certain standards uh, with respect to data protection. And a company officer has to make that certification, um, and then your company's name is listed on the Safe Harbor website, uh, and you are agreeing as part of that certification that you can be regulated and potentially fined by the Federal Trade Commission uh, if you violate the Safe Harbor principles. So it's a way of making the FTC a regulator for European legal standards as well as for U.S. legal standards. And so you are voluntarily submitting yourself to the jurisdiction of the Federal Trade Commission uh, and agreeing to live up to European-style privacy principles by certifying to the safe harbor. And the safe harbor will then allow you to transfer data from the EU to the U.S. It does not uh, allow you to transfer data from the EU to other countries because they're not part of the safe harbor. But you can transfer it to the U.S. first and then do what's called an onward transfer that would go to another country. Um, and for that, you would need to put in place a, a contract between the safe harbor entity and the other entity that you're sending the data to. Now, you you created uh, the Pioneering Binding Corporate Rules, or BCR program. Now, how did, how did that work? Right. Well, all of these things that I've just described can get very complicated <laughs> when you're dealing with lots of entities. Right. Uh, and when I was at GE, we had over 10,000 legal entities uh, <sighs> that were part of the GE corporate group. And how so, did you sleep at night? <laughs> uh, I didn't. Uh, you know, as you can imagine, putting <laughs> contracts in place between that many legal entities uh, was quite an exercise, and we did do some of that. Um, you know, grab getting consent from every conceivable uh, person that you were processing data about uh, was also a challenge. Uh, um, <laughs> and, you know, even Safe Harbor was difficult for us because uh, one of the things about Safe Harbor is that you uh, cannot do Safe Harbor 
if you are a financial institution. And you uh, have some financial institutions, right? Yes, and GE had uh, GE Consumer Finance and GE Commercial Finance, which were financial institutions. Um, and in at least a consumer finance case, they were regulated by a U.S. law called the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act. And there was some conflict between the requirements of the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act and the safe harbor when the safe harbor was being negotiated. Um, plus, um, it, the whole idea of safe harbor is that you're submitting yourself to the jurisdiction of the Federal Trade Commission, whereas all the banking institutions and mortgage companies and uh, other financial institutions in the U.S. have regulators that are specific to them. Right. Um, and so they aren't directly regulated by the FTC. So you so, could you couldn't like split up, right? You had to have you you couldn't use the uh, the uh, safe harbor because of a few of your companies were financial institutions. So it just knocked you out of everything, or well, you, you know, it, it would have been one of those interesting things to try um, yeah. to take a couple of our businesses and put them under something other than safe harbor and put the rest of our businesses under safe harbor. And we did consider those alternatives, but we really did want to have one right. way to do things across the company uh, because it gets so difficult for the information technology people who process all of this data, right. and in our case for the human resources department that was using the employee data, uh, to have different sets of rules that apply to data that comes from different places or that right. goes to different businesses. So right. what we elected to do uh, was something different than all of the above, which was something called binding corporate rules. And this was something that was being pioneered uh, by Daimler Chrysler in hmm. Germany. Um, and we found out about it uh, in about uh, uh, 2000, around the 2000, around the 2000 time frame, and uh, talked to them about how they were going about it and decided that that would be a good way for us to go as well. And the theory of it is this. If you are a group of companies, as we were, and as Daimler was, then and you are located throughout the world, um, then why not have a policy, a set of rules that binds all of the members of that corporate group to protect data in certain ways, and then go to the data protection authorities in Europe and say, we've put in place these rules and this policy, and they're called binding corporate rules, uh, because they're binding, they apply to a corporation, and they're rules. Uh, <laughs> right. But not a lot of imagination in that. Um, at least it's clear. <laughs> it's true. And, and for short, it's called BCRs. And um, you go to the data protection authorities and you say, look, we've put in place adequate protections for data, uh, that for transfers of data amongst and between the members of our corporate group, wherever they may be located in whatever country. Um, so why can't we get approved by you to do that? So we proceeded to go one at a time to the data protection authorities, and there's at least one in each European Union country. Uh, and in some countries, there's more than one. For uh, Germany, for example, has 16 landers, and they have a data protection authority in each one. Oh, no. So you had to visit each one of those? Uh, yes. <laughs> and in Switzerland, they have them for each canton. Uh. Um, and so we started in Germany because we thought if we can get all the 16 landers on board to the same policy and all uh, approve it, then we could go to the other countries and uh, take that to them and try to get them one at a time. Right, and say, we've already got 16. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And we did achieve that approval in 2002 and uh, rolled out our policy um, and then started taking it to the other countries. And what we found is you have to go through an iterative process where you go to country uh, B 
B, and you say, well, look, here's what's already been approved in country A, and then country B says, yes, but here's some changes we want to make. Oh, no. And so if you agree to the changes, you have to go back to country A (laughs) and say, well, can you please approve the changes that we've just had to make? Uh, And by the time you get to country, you know, M, N, and O, you know, you're going back to a lot of countries with every change that gets made. So it could become quite laborious. That sounds like my mediations. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody says, okay, I'll agree to these, but now add this, and you have to go back and get everybody to buy into it. So that that was something, but you were able to do it, right? Well, what we did was we started um, having discussions with what's called the Article 29 Working Party, which is a, a committee of representatives from each of the national data protection authorities. And we told them the problem we were having, and Daimler was having this same problem, and then Philips, uh, another big company based in the Netherlands, decided that they wanted to do that too. And so they were also in there lobbying with us that, look, we've got to have a coordinated approval process, or companies just aren't going to do this. And so they began, they formed a subcommittee to study it, and they started working with the various data protection authorities to put something in place. And... um, They did issue some papers in 2005 with a checklist that tells you the things you need to do to get a binding corporate rules uh, approach approved um, and uh, a coordinated approval process where you can go to a one country where you have uh, a substantial amount of your operations. Uh, If it's for employee data, they'll look at do you have a substantial amount of your employees there, is it where your corporate headquarters for Europe are, things like that. And uh, if you can show that there's a country to which you have substantial connections, uh, then you can ask them to serve as the lead data protection authority uh, for a coordinated approval process. And then you submit to them first, you get their approval first, and then they will uh, forward your materials to a number of other data protection authorities that you would like to have included and uh, receive comments from them. And your lead DPA will coordinate the various comments. Which oh, works good. out much yeah. better. Yeah, because and, you have an advocate. <laughs> uh, yes, and, and it, it you know provides some continuity to the process. Right. And, and, and they can end up saying, look, we've already approved this. It looks good enough to us. Why do you need to change it? Right, right. They help so, with the negotiation, right. Right. And it also, the, the procedures put in place some time limitations, and time limitations aren't always followed, but at least it was an effort. Uh, to try to make this a process that you could get through in about six months. Right, right. Um, you know, long story short, we started the GE process. We started, well, I guess we got our approval in Germany in 2002, and as of the beginning of 2007, we are still uh, uh. trying to get everybody on board. Um, and I, I left GE at the end of 2005, but I've sort of been staying in touch with this, and I, my understanding is they have about 14 countries on board, and I wouldn't be surprised to see an announcement uh, made sometime in the near future uh, that they've completed phase one and these countries are all on board. Um, but the, the thing that I counsel companies about is that you don't have to complete the whole thing in order to achieve some benefit because each time a country approves, you can start exporting data from that country right away. Right. You know, and you can you can stop using the other methods that you were using like... Um, the contract. Consent or yeah. contracts or right. safe harbor. Um, and so, you know, it, it, you know, until you get all of the countries that you export data from on board, it means you still have to use some of those other methods. But, but as soon as one's done, you can, it can save you a lot. I mean, as soon as we got our approval in the U.K., we had uh, 600 and something legal entities that could all start sending data 
back to headquarters. Yes, uh, yeah. Just from that one country. So, so that streamlined it. Now, who who enforces this? Let's say, you know, that there is an allegation um, or, well, if there's complaints about perhaps a violation of these binding corporate rules, who do they complain to, the European Union? They uh, will allow you to have an internal dispute resolution process. Oh, like an ombudsman? As, as a starting point, particularly uh-huh. if you're dealing with employee data. Rather than have someone just run off to court or run off to a data protection authority, um, you can build your rules such that they have to go through an internal dispute resolution right. uh, process. And hopefully if, that'll nick it in the bud, huh? Yes. But if it does not, um, there's also now a panel of data protection authorities, and the safe harbor approach uses this, uh, where you can the person can submit a complaint to a panel of DPAs, um, and there's nothing that keeps you from using that same panel for your binding corporate rules if you want to add that as a second layer of dispute resolution. Makes uh, sense. Then, yeah. Sorry? I said it makes a lot of sense to have a, you know, a dispute resolution procedure first before anybody goes crazy and costs a lot of money. Yes, and even for the individuals, you know, it can be quite costly to go to court. Um, it doesn't cost them much to, to call a data protection authority and lodge a complaint through the administrative right. process. And right. some countries allow that. In some countries, if you want to actually get compensation, you've got to go to court. Right. And so that you are usually going to be required in order to get a binding corporate rule approved um, or a set of binding corporate rules approved to have a uh, recognition in there that if the individual exhausts the non-judicial processes and they want to go to court, um, that you're not going to play games about jurisdiction and you're not going to play games about the fact that the entity that collected the data is different than the entity that spilled the data and things like that. So you do have to provide some reassurances in those rules that the individual who is harmed uh, by a transfer of data and a subsequent misuse of the data uh, won't uh, be cheated out of a remedy because you're sharing amongst a big corporate group. We're speaking with James M. Jordan, who is a certified information privacy professional, and his company is Jordan Legal Counsel. He served for six years as the chief privacy leader and senior counsel for e-commerce for the General Electric Company, did some great things for them. And we're talking about all sorts of things on privacy and companies and what not only uh, what international companies should be doing, but even, you know, regular companies who don't do a lot of uh, importing and exporting. We were talking about a few minutes ago about, you know, complaints or about concerns if there's any violation of these, uh, the data protection. So that kind of leads us to what we've been hearing about for quite a long time in the United States is these security breaches. So I know that you also counsel uh, companies regarding security breach disclosures and security breaches. What do you tell companies to do if they call you and say, we just had a security breach of computerized information? W- what do you tell them? I tell them to stop the leak. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and that is one of the first things that you should do is if you um, have had an exposure of data, uh, it may still be going on. Uh, it may not be an isolated event. So you want to investigate, um, make sure uh, that you have stopped whatever was happening from happening again, um, and then take corrective action uh, with respect to the harm that's already occurred, if any. Um, You want to do an investigation to determine if the uh, data that was accessed by an unauthorized person is actually going to cause any harm. And under the, uh, the federal standards, 
that are uh, imposed under the Graham Leach Bliley Act. Um, you know, if you don't have a likelihood of harm, you may not have to do a disclosure. Uh, same thing under most of the state statutes. Uh, not all of them, but probably about half of them have some sort of harm trigger uh, in the statute uh, that says that if you've had, you know, an unauthorized access, but it's not going anywhere, it's not going to cause harm to the consumer, um, then there's not a disclosure that has to be made. Right, and we talked about since we're sitting here in the state of California, the California law is a little bit more stringent. The trigger is if you have um, an, an auth- unauthorized acquisition, uh, then and it is not encrypted, uh, and there are certain data elements that have been exposed, like a social security number, a name, a social security number, a name with account numbers, etc. Then you you must notify. So. Um, if you have California, you know, anybody who does business in California, in other words, if you have California citizens who are involved and you've got the kind of data breach that did, was not encrypted, um, then you pretty much have a duty to notify. Right. And there's some debate about whether there should be a federal law that preempts all of these state laws and what the standards should be in that federal law, if so. And there certainly are people... Uh, lobbying for having a federal law that does have a harm trigger on it so that these state laws that don't have a harm trigger would be preempted. Right. Um, so they're, they're, they're probably, last year there was a lot of bills introduced, and there's, I'm sure that we're going to see some some law. I, I would imagine that we're going to see that happening uh, with more fury this year, too, about what should be the standard. Yeah. And, you know, I think the rationale for these disclosures um, is that the consumer if he knows that the data has been compromised and it's the type of data that could cause an identity theft risk, then he can take some self-protective measures. He can go and put um, a fraud alert on his credit account, uh, his credit files with the big credit reporting agencies. He can cancel and reissue credit cards and, and do some self-help uh, things to protect himself, and that's right. why the laws require the disclosures. It makes some sense given that rationale, that if it's not the type of disclosure that will, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't create a situation that will be helped by the consumer doing those things, you know, do, should you go through all of the expense of doing a notification when the consumer's not going to know what to do with it? Now, know, I, think, I, I think that was, you know, I, I helped uh, work on our, our uh, security breach notification law, and our intent was to have a stick and a carrot. And the stick was you notify and the carrot was you don't have to notify if you encrypt to the, you know, to the standard at the time. And so if if something's, you know, we're hopefully unless the, the bad guy who acquired the stuff has the key to unencrypt, um, the encryption is going to be at least a pretty good safeguard. And if you look at all the security breaches that we've had since uh, 2005, um, we're talking about over, you know, uh, of the ones that were publicly disclosed, we're talking over, you know, 100 million records that have been disclosed that a lot of them have included the social security number, account numbers, debit card numbers. And those are, are really, you know, quite... Um, 
make you quite vulnerable to identity theft. So that was the intent is let's let consumers know so they can put the fraud alert, they can cancel the account, they can uh, close their checking account, they can get a new debit card, something that they can do to at least protect themselves. And and hopefully more companies will encrypt their backup tapes. They won't send out, uh, they'll have better security measures as to laptops. You know, so many of those security breaches are, are laptops that are stolen. Right. And I've, I've personally been the recipient of at least three uh-huh. security breach disclosure notices. Um, I, I am a veteran, so I did receive the one from the Veterans Administration. Right. And I've gotten a couple of others, and my wife has received a couple. So. And what did you do, Jim? What did you guys do to... Um, I subscribe to uh, Equifax uh, Gold Credit Watch. Right. Uh, and, and all of the Experian and TransUnion also offer mm-hmm. uh, products like that where you pay uh, anywhere from 30 to $80 a year, depending on how many bells and whistles you want, um, uh, to have a watch on your account. Credit uh, monitoring, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that you'll get an email uh, if someone checks your account. And uh, I get emails even when nothing has happened to tell me that nothing happened this month. Right. Um, which is just sort of a warm and fuzzy, makes you feel better. Um, and, and that's good for, you know, for um, to protect yourself some, from financial identity theft. It doesn't do much for criminal identity theft if somebody's going to use that information and commit crimes. It doesn't do much if somebody's going to actually get into your checking account because that doesn't appear in your credit report. And it doesn't do much for your debit card. It doesn't do for some of the other kinds of fraud, like, you know, disability fraud or working for, you know, the IRS under your name. Those kinds of things, it doesn't really protect you. Right. But the banks are starting to offer some remedies there as well. I happen to bank, do online banking with Bank of America. Mm -hmm. Um, And on my checking account, I can set various thresholds for alerts. Uh, so that if any check uh, greater than $200 clears, they send me an email. Yep. And it may be me, it may be somebody else, but you know, I, I, you can set that threshold for you want to know about any check that clears the bank, that amount. And there, there's probably a dozen different alerts that I can set up for. So depending on your bank, they, they probably will offer you some sort of online email alerts to indicate that something funky may be going on with your accounts. And, you know, I think that's been the beauty of this, the, uh, the security notification uh, breach notification laws is that it has brought this to a conscious level. So a lot of companies, like you said, like the Bank of America is my bank too, American Express, a lot of these companies ha- are now looking at more uh, careful ways to protect your data, more encryption. Encryption is growing. Um, these kinds of alerts like you're talking about when you do online banking and other kinds of alerts. I think that's been the beauty is that it's really uh, kind of forced companies to say, uh-oh, we don't want to have to have a notification. We don't want this in the newspaper. We don't want to have any part of this. So I think it's really done that part has been great to really encourage um, more uh, changes. Uh, every every attorney I've talked to who is advising some big companies is saying, yeah, they're looking at it more carefully because of that. Have you found that too, Jim? I do think that people respond uh, to the possibility of, of ending up in the newspaper in a negative way. Um, I, you, know, you could certainly argue that the dis- security breach disclosure statute was not the most efficient way to encourage uh, improvements in business practice that you might have done the same thing with uh, better regulations uh, and a more controlled rollout uh, rather than, uh, you know, all of a sudden one day, you know, we're all trying to react uh, to what one state did and then a bunch of other states follow suit. Um, And I think we saw some of the uh, 
the things that happened when there were differences between the states on how they handled those things. And, and uh, some companies tried to treat people differentially depending on where they lived, and that didn't work out. No, well. that didn't. They had to pretty much come up to the California standard. Right? Uh, yep. And although some of them have surpassed the California standard, I right. frankly think there are some uh, uh, laws, I've been looking at New York and Delaware, for example, that in some aspects are, I think, are is even stricter right. uh, than the right. California one. And everybody seems to want to one-up each other. You know, if, if there's somebody comes up with a new and innovative uh, idea to put into their security breach disclosure law, then the next legislative session you see a bunch of other states jump on board and amend theirs. So it's getting to be uh, quite challenging to yeah. keep up with what the latest state of the art is. And now the Europeans are getting into the act because one of the things they had not put into their generally stricter than what we have law uh, is the idea of a security breach notification. And so now the Europeans are looking at putting that idea into their laws as well. You know, I, I noticed that also with Canada. And, and Canada is, you know, with their privacy laws and the Privacy Commission, now they're looking at the issue of, of uh, putting together some security breach notification laws that are that are quite stringent as well. So um, I think the main role is one coming from people, you know, who have dealt with so many people who have been victims of criminal and other kinds of, you know, financial identity theft, that to me, I think knowing about it, at least we can do something. And I, I've received those letters as well in my own bank. Um, had a very small breach that never got in the paper. As a premier banker, I found out that uh, my premier banker found out that her car was broken into with a laptop that had all of my information on it. So, you know, I would rather know and take the measures that I need to take to cancel accounts, uh, to change checking accounts, to put up other fraud alerts and, and put up a security freezer, whatever I want to do. At least I am in a position to have some control over my information. So, I'm going to be one that's going to be a proponent of having at least a notification um, be the trigger if certain data is acquired that isn't encrypted. But we'll see what happens at the federal level. I, I know it's it's been a big fight last year, and it's going to be, I think, a big fight this year, too, because the companies don't want to have to disclose unless they think that there is a reasonable risk of harm. But, you know, I'll tell you something, Jim. Most of the time, the victim is the one who tells the company, hey, I'm a victim and the police found it and it, it really came from your company. So most of the time, the companies don't even know until the victims tell them. You know what I mean? Or, right. or law enforcement. So I don't think they are always in the best position to know. So that's that's a problem. Right. But, you know, I do think that there is a lot of inefficiency in the taking out of newspaper ads and the things that go on when you don't have contact information for all the people involved. Right, right. Um, and we've had so many of these now um, that I think people are becoming a little bit you know, numb to it. And so you can get to a point not only of diminishing returns, but, but perhaps of uh, something that, that it's too many cries of wolf, that, that it becomes counterproductive. Um, so, uh, you know, to the extent that a consumer is not being just bombarded with a bunch of stuff that he doesn't know what to do with, uh, it can be effective. But if you reach that point, you know, I, I know there are people who get lots of these Graham Leach Bliley notices in the mail and just throw them away and don't read them. And they don't uh, understand them. <laughs> right. Most of the time they don't understand that they're, you know, what that means to opt out. They, they're not really clear. Does that mean that they can opt out of having their information sold to anyone? And most of the time they don't even understand that if they opt out of having their information sold to a third party that's not affiliated with the company, that they don't have any right to opt out from the company sharing with all of its 
affiliates. You know, so the same concept, I think, applies in the security breach law situation, though. We need to try to simplify this. We need to try to make it the same across the country. And so the, the patchwork of state laws that we have now that seem to change about every three months in every given state uh, is just very complex. And it's, it's hard, it's hard, hard companies. on companies. Sure it is. I mean, the, to try and meet every single law, that's crazy. Uh, I, I agree. I think it would be helpful to have a federal law, and that federal law would at least set, you know, the floor and um, and if it does preempt, then it really shouldn't take away rights that have already been established by by states. You know, I mean. Well, that, that's I, I could argue that if the federal law merely sets a floor and the states can put in higher ceilings, that you're still going to have a patchwork. And that could be too. So that's why I said, if you don't want to have a floor and you want to have a preemption, at least don't take away rights that you already had. That has happened to us in the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act. California had passed some very good laws to protect identity theft victims, and when FACTA passed, it took away some of those rights that we had that was, you know, that we fought for for years to and help victims. arguably the same thing happened with CAN-SPAM, because yes. the, shortly before a California law was to take effect requiring opt-in for emails, right. uh, the, the national standard preemptively became opt-out. And, and that's really hard for, for <laughs> and, and that also happened with the, uh, we had had the uh, Jackie Spear had gotten a law passed that we have opt-in in California, meaning um, for the for companies cannot sell to another company our personal information if it's unaffiliated without prior permission. You have consent, and what she tried to do in that bill was to say that you could have opt-out for non-affiliates, and that was deemed by courts that that was preempted. In other words, even in California, I have no right to opt-out of having my information sold to affiliates. And I'll tell you what really aggravated me. When we refinanced our home and we um, had a, the title company gave us a list of all of its affiliates, it was five pages long, and I realized that all of my financial information was going to be shared with all five pages of those affiliates. And I had no right to opt out of it. And and that's exactly why Jackie Spear had tried to get that uh, passed. And we did pass it, but it was preempted. So that's the kind of stuff that, that's, I think, disheartening, at least when you do work on privacy legislation, if it gets preempted and takes away rights that you've worked hard to get. It's... I it, you know, it's frustrating. I do think, though, that when you set a national standard, there has to be a balance between protecting individuals and not unduly burdening commerce. Exactly. And I, that's you're what right. the Commerce Clause of the Constitution was all about, is not unduly burdening national commerce. And so it may be that some states that are early adopters of some of these standards, whether it be California or elsewhere, may not have come up with the best balance. Uh, in the way that they have uh, created these rights. And so I can certainly see situations where uh, Congress, in establishing a national standard, may decide to strike that balance in a different way and to try to remedy the situations in a different way. And that may sometimes result in rights being taken away from someone in a state where they previously had them. If you, if you 
said that that could never happen, it would become a, a total first-mover advantage situation, mm-hmm. uh, where whichever state rushed to the state house and created a law you know, that could never be preempted you know, might be creating a standard that it's just not the right balance for the country. Right. Well, we've seen, like, with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, like, Vermont has more stringent laws than we do. You know what I mean? And they, they preempted for everybody except those states that had already gotten a, a tighter fist on it. So... We'll see. We'll see what happens. I think it'll be interesting because we're going to have proponents from all. My view is that we, we, we don't want to hurt commerce, but we want to, We don't want to hurt consumers at the expense of commerce either. So it, you're right. It's that balance. How do we work it so that consumers are not injured and commerce, that the, that the companies can still flourish and make money and not have to, you know, deal with 50 different laws? It makes a lot right. of sense to me. And companies, you know, they, they don't really want to see uh, uh, identity theft happening either. It's costly right. to companies to have to reissue credit cards, change account numbers, and all of this sort of thing, uh, and to have false charges being uh, imposed uh, on accounts right. because of the identity theft. So, you know, I think there's a commonality of interest between the consumers and the companies on that part of it. So let's switch gears a little bit. You and I both sit as fellows to the Poneman Institute, and we both love Larry. Larry's been on our show three times, and we're just thrilled. He's He brings a wonderful conglomeration of people together, like you and me, who sometimes see things a little bit differently from another perspective, but that's healthy because then we get to, you know, learn from each other. So what is it that, that, uh, what's your role with the Poneman Institute? Well, Larry uh, asked me uh, about a year ago to become a fellow of the Poneman Institute, which uh, means I get to have my picture on his website. Me too, Uh, me too. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it means I get to serve as a subject matter expert, uh, which is the sort of uh, consulting firm parlance uh, for uh, uh, you know something about something, and so they want to put you on the calls. Um, and so I, I bring to the table, you know, some expertise in some of the things that we've talked about that I had experience in, including the, the international data transfers. And so I do work on one of the, uh, the RIM Council projects around international data transfers. And I also sit in on a couple of the other projects. Uh, there's uh, a, a project uh, around the use of employee data. And which includes the international transfer issue, but also some others, uh, trying to help you know com- companies come up with standards for how to handle employee data uh, internationally. And that and, that's really important. I sat in on the workplace. You know, uh, I guess that's that's one of the subcommittees as well. And that's really important because we get a lot of calls from people in the workplace, and they say, you know, they ask a lot of questions about, you know. Do they have a right to listen to my personal calls? And um, do they have a right to look at my emails? And, you know, what are my rights in the bathroom and surveillance and all these different things? A lot of people are very worried about the, the data that's collected on them as well and who's shared with, especially if you have, you know, the... Um, self-insurance for health insurance. So I think those are really critical issues that, that you can, you know, obviously help the Poneman Institute with as well. And I'm happy to help them. I think it's important for consumers who may be listening to your show uh, to, to know that these are companies that have voluntarily gotten together uh, with Larry's guidance, um, and they fund this thing, and they get together on calls, and they compare practices um, and compare notes on how can you best protect consumer data? Uh, How can we have good security? How can we have good processes? 
Um, and so these are things that these companies are doing not because anybody's requiring them to do it. Um, I mean, they have to comply with the regulations telling them to do some of these things, but um, nobody's making them uh, support and cooperate in the, uh, the Poneman Institute and the REM Council to do it. They're just doing it because they, um, they want to get better at it. Right, and, and they're looking for best practices, which is really admirable, and ethical practices. And, and that's that's why I am um, very impressed with that. And, and people have heard that we've talked about some of the studies that the Poneman Institute does, too, consumer surveys and business surveys about what's really happening in the area of privacy. So you're also um, involved in being a, a consulting CPO for companies, and a CPO is a chief privacy officer. So, uh-huh. um, you know, a lot of small companies can't afford to have their own in-house counsel like you were for GE. So what what is the role of the CPO in a, in a smaller company? Well, I think the role, essential uh, elements of the role of a chief privacy officer are the same in any size company, and that is to uh, make sure that the company um, is handling um, personal data correctly, um, and that they are handling the, the privacy of individuals correctly. And in a bigger company, that becomes more complicated and more time-consuming because there are more moving parts and more things going on. Um, but even in a small company, if it is a, uh, a company that is focused on the collection and processing of information, uh, a full-time CPO role and even a full-time CPO role with the staff Uh, can be justified. Um, And some of those are not huge companies in terms of revenue or in terms of uh, employees. Um, You know, a lot of them are are e-commerce companies uh, that have just, they collect a lot of data. They've built a business model around collecting and analyzing um, and packaging data and selling it uh, generally in an aggregated form rather than with the name still attached to it. But, but, you know, they've had to collect personal data in order to get there. So, um, you know, there are some. On the other hand, there are some very big companies that don't do a whole lot with data. Right. You know, your typical, you know, in, in e-commerce terms, B to B, you know, business to business, sure, uh, manufacturing type company, um, doesn't really collect a lot of personal data. Do Except maybe with. on its own employees. That's true. Most big companies with employees collect a significant amount of information. Sure. On them. In fact, those are some of the richest databases around. Right. Um, you know, a company might have 500 pieces of data uh, about an employee um, and, and, you know, maybe 50 pieces of data about a consumer. Exactly. Um, so, you know, those, those databases uh, are, again, they've got Social Security numbers. They've got salaries. They've got bank accounts for the electronic transfers. Exactly. They've got a lot of stuff. So. You know, your employer probably has more data about you than anybody does. Right, right. That's, and that's, that's, that's so scary. For, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, no, I agree with you. I was, I'm sorry. I just was agreeing with you. Yeah, and that's why it's, I think it's important for companies to get that right, too. Um, and some companies, uh, you know, have, have focused more on the consumer part of this and really haven't thought as much as they should uh, about, you know, the damage that could occur from a leakage of employee data or, uh, you know, people in that, you know, uh, accessing it. Uh, when they shouldn't be, even within your own company. I mean, if you have a database that has all the employees in it and you just let everybody and anybody come in and look at it, there's all sorts of mischief that can happen from that. Um, Or even, uh, you know, even offline, you know, one time I was doing a privacy audit in Northern California and and I was walking around and walked into an area that 
was the personnel department, and I opened up a cabinet, and there was all the personnel files. And I could pick up any one of them and see all the payroll information. So, you know, a lot of people are so worried, you know, oh, you know, has our IT department, uh, you know, protected this? Is it encrypted or whatever? And then their offline practices aren't even congruent with all of the security that they've done for their electronic practices. So, And we have in some companies the electronic version of that filing cabinet. Right. You know, people will put stuff in a database and then just have it default to access by everyone. Yeah. <laughs> And then they can go in and look. And, and then you'll have, um, you know, most companies have got people who travel, and they've got a database for all of the reimbursable expenses that get submitted. Yep. Uh, so you've built this nice database of how much people spent on dinner and whether they got wine and how much they spent on their hotel room and what cities they were staying in what nights and all that good stuff. Um, and I've seen some of those where they just let everybody, anybody go in there and look, and where they even have something called a wall of shame. Oh, goodness. Uh, where, where the people who spend the most money uh, on trips and who, who spend more money than the company feels like they should be spending on trips are singled out for attention uh, and the ridicule of their fellow employees. Oh, great. That's good to, for morale. In order to motivate them to, uh, to eat cheaper next time. Um, and so, I, you know, I, there's not a whole lot in terms of U.S. law that prevents them from doing that. Uh, now, the EU laws definitely prevent stuff like that because they've got uh, principles in there uh, regarding uh, who should get access to the data. Right. Uh, and it should only be people who have a reasonable business need to know the data. And so, you know, uh, you know when so you, we maybe sometimes need you tell companies that they shouldn't really be doing that, you can't say it's because the law prevents it. It's because the law probably one of these days is going to prevent it and because in the meantime they are not developing a very trusting relationship with their employees. Right. Now, Lloyd just gave me the sign that we only have about two minutes. So okay. we're sitting here at the University of California. We have a lot of people who might be interested in becoming a chief privacy officer or get into privacy law. What trends, can you tell me in just a, like a minute or so, what trends do you see developing in privacy law, Jim? I see that the various regulators are all studying each other and borrowing from each other. So you see ideas like the security breach disclosure law that started in California spreading not only across other U.S. states, but also now across the ocean to the European Union. Uh, I see U.S. states, in turn, adopting stuff from the European Union. Uh, I see um, the Asian countries, uh, the Asia APEC, Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, trying to find its own course um, where it borrows from various ideas from Europe, uh, but also tries to modify them. So I, I think you're seeing a spread of this to larger geography. I think you're seeing um, the standards becoming uh, more normalized than they have been because of all of this borrowing. But I see the bar going up. And for companies, that means that you're going to have more places where you have to worry about this, and you're going to have a standard that is getting higher and higher and higher. You're also um, getting some industry standards that are getting higher because as companies get better at this, if the other people that are in the industry with you have better security, better authentication, better protections for data, then you, if you haven't moved, now look lower. Yeah, that's and a competitive edge. Exactly. It's a competitive edge, and it's also a regulatory concern because when the FTC comes in and looks, they're going to say, well, they have this, why don't you? 
Exactly. Well, I got it, Jim. We're going to have to go because Lloyd tell, telling me that it's time. But you're going to have to come back and tell us what's going on next year. So thank you so much, Jim, for joining us today. And uh, we will talk to you soon. Thanks for having me on. Okay. You've been listening to James Jordan, who is a certified information privacy professional with Jordan Legal Counsel. You can go to jordanlegalcounsel.com. And you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. You can see our previous guests, listen to our archived interviews, download podcasts, subscribe to our podcasts, and listen to us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI. And thank you so much, Lloyd, for being a great engineer. This is Mari Frank signing off as your host of Privacy Piracy. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.